Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 5. We're going to do verses 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, how they lied to the Holy Spirit and paid for it with their lives. Our context is this. Peter and John had just been arrested by the Sanhedrin in chapter 4. They had been released. They had recounted their, what the Sanhedrin had told them, namely that they were not to preach, preach the, or teach in Jesus' name anymore. And the assembled listening apostles said, why do the heathen rage? Why do the Gentiles rage? And the, why do the Jews and the Gentiles attack the anointed one, the Messiah? And they went out and preached anyway. So that was the last chapter. Now we're in Acts 5, starting with verses 1 and reading verse 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, in the last chapter, the last part of Acts chapter 4, it was related that the apostles and the early Christians there were keeping everything in common so that nobody's property was anybody else's property and everybody was living together and sharing their goods. And I, I mentioned that this was not a pattern. This was a one-off situation because of all those pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims in Jerusalem during the festival of Pentecost, which was extended because of the Holy Spirit falling. And so Christians were there hanging around all the good spiritual stuff, all the evangelism going on. They didn't have any way to support themselves. And so that's the context of this. Ananias, the, the Christians were selling their property and giving all the money to the apostles who were distributing the money to all the early Christians. And Ananias did the same thing. But the problem was he and his wife conspired together to keep a part of the sales price to themselves and then went to the apostles, Peter, and said, this is what we sold the property for and here's the money. In other words, they lied about it. You notice it was with his wife's knowledge they were co-conspirators. They only brought a portion of the proceeds and laid it to the apostles' feet. Now, the fact that this event was coolly premeditated, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown put it, that aggravates their guilt. They deliberately tried to fox the apostle Peter. We need to point out that the sin was not in keeping back a portion. As the NIV Study Bible says, they had every right to keep the money back. The sin was lying to the apostles and saying that they had given all the money to the apostles. This was an attempt to deceive the Holy Spirit, as Adam Clark says. This, that's serious business. Now, what were their motives? The NIV Study Bible says perhaps they had a love of praise for their pretended generosity. Oh, look what charitable people Ananias and Sapphira are. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest there might have been a holy rivalry as people competed to show their piety. Or maybe it's because of peer pressure. Everybody else is giving money, but they love their money too much to give it away. But at any rate, for whatever reason, their sin was the first recorded, recorded sin of the church. There is no other recorded info about Ananias and his wife in the scriptures or in secular history. Were they Christians? Adam Clark says they apparently were so, and I think they were. Otherwise, why would they be living out there with all the other Christians? And I make this final comment about this unfortunate incident. incident. Ananias and Sapphira's death shows that it's not good to sin that grace may abound. <laughs> You'd say, well, yeah, they sinned, but God would forgive them for it. Well, they died. Jesus will temporarily punish people. I'm sure Ananias and Sapphira went to heaven. I'm sure they didn't lose their salvation. But they lost their life. So these people who say, well, I can do whatever I want. I can sin. The grace may abound. You know, God, God been predestined from the, 
from the foundation of the world, and therefore I can go out and rob banks and have a threesome with my neighbor's wife, and I can do all that stuff, and God's going to forgive me for it. Well, yeah, he, he might forgive you for it after he kills you, and you lose your life temporarily and make your life a living hell on earth. Verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And that means you have not lied merely to men, because he lied to Peter too, but it means you have not lied merely only to men, but also to God. Now you notice that the Holy Spirit here is called God. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, Peter says. And then he says, you have not lied to men, but to God. Well, if you lie to the Holy Spirit and you lie to God, that means God and the Holy Spirit are equally divine. Good argument for two persons of the Trinity being God, part of the Godhead. How did Peter know what had happened? How did Peter know that Ananias was trying to fox the Holy Spirit? John Gill says it was because a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Adam Clark says it was an example of discernment of spirits, as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, I think, or maybe 14, the spiritual gifts chapters, discernment of spirits. But he knew. Now, Satan filled your heart. As John Gill points out, Satan was working hand in hand with Ananias and Sapphira's sinful flesh. And that's an interesting point to make because a lot of times people say, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. The devil did it in cooperation with your free will, your desires, your passions, your lust. You are always responsible. You can't just blame it on the devil. Why has Satan filled your heart? That word filled, according to Adam Clark, can be translated as instigate, excite, or impel. Why has Satan instigated your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan excited your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why has Satan impelled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? In other words, the devil's right there urging him on. And he succumbed and he, with his free will, and so he's responsible, Ananias was. Now notice Peter says the money was your, the house, the field, not the house, I'm sorry, the field, was yours while you possessed it. In other words, you had title to it. You didn't have to give it to the church. And after it was sold, the proceeds, weren't the proceeds at your disposal? Yeah, you could have done whatever you wanted to with that money. This is not a, a communist government enterprise where you're forced by confiscatory taxation to give all your money to the church. No. The church is not making you give all the money to the church. This was a totally voluntary operation that you chose to participate in. You lied about it. So again, the sin was not that he kept the money back. He had every right to do that. The sin was lying about it. We go to chapter 5, Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. Now, what are the options? as to what caused Ananias to die. John Gill says an angel whacked him, or suggests that. John Gill suggests maybe it was a gift of judgment given to Peter, and Peter himself whacked him. I got an unlikely idea. Maybe Ananias died a natural death due to the shock upon hearing Peter's words. I don't believe that's true, <laughs> because people usually don't die from something like that, and, and, and his wife, Sapphira, died the same way. Two people going to die from shock? At, no, that didn't happen. Or maybe it was just the Holy Spirit did it. That was my suggestion, too. I don't know why we have to get so complicated about this. God, in some way, whacked him, punished him for his sin. Now, the next question is, why would God ex do such a severe penalty? I mean, basically what he did, he lied. That's the punishment for lying? I mean, usually we don't kill people for lying. We might 
I don't know, flog them, put them in jail or something, but not kill them. Well, this is an idea that I have read in commentators, and I think it's a good idea, is, is that the severe penalty was very necessary given the infant state of the church. If such sin as Ananias had done and Sapphira had done, if that kind of sin were allowed to go on unchecked, it would have wrecked the church. The example to the hostile Jews would have been horrible, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. The Christians would probably have been at each other's throats. The witness that would be presented to the hostile Jews would have been such that the Jews would have started mocking the church. And remember, the church is small. It had just gotten started. It did not have the credibility of centuries of existence behind it. And the church could have disappeared. And that's why the Holy Spirit was so strict there at the very beginning. Another bad result of this sin being unpunished was the believers would think that the Holy Spirit could be deceived. And so then they thought, well, let's just fool old Let's fool the Apostle Peter again. Believers would think that dishonesty was profitable. That was church discipline to the max. What a great example of church discipline. And how many times? How many times is church discipline done today? When you got open sin in the congregation and you don't do anything about it, it might hurt the income coming in. Why was it young men that got up and wrapped his body, carried him out and buried him? Why was it young men that did that? They needed to be young to carry out the dead body. Young people are stronger than older ones, stronger backs and such. The body was wrapped to prepare the corpse for burial, and they carried the body out, either out of the camp or out of the city. They took him to a probably a public cemetery. And this was probably on the same day because Sapphire didn't have time to find out what had happened to her husband because she came in and pulled the same stunt that her husband did, and she got carried out too and buried. We go to Acts 5, verses 7 through 8. There was an interval of about three hours that his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the field for this price? Now, Peter, of course, is wise to what had happened now, so he's, he's setting up Sapphira, going to see if she's going to be truthful or not. Yes, she said, for that price. He named the price, the price of the field that, the price that Ananias, her husband, had said the field was sold for, and so he just checked with her and said, this price that you sold the field for, is this what you sold the field for? Yes, she said, that was a bald-faced lie because they'd sold the field for more than that, gave the smaller price to the apostles, Peter, and kept the rest of the proceeds for themselves. Now, she came in, she probably was expecting great honor because of the great act of charity Ananias had done, and it, instead of getting great honor, she got whacked. <laughs> she was killed. Acts. 5 verse 9, Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. That's the feet of those, that's the young men who had carried Ananias out. They're going to carry you out too. In other words, Peter is predicting her death. That's why some people say Peter had the power to kill. I don't think so. I think the Holy Spirit did it directly, not with Peter's. He, Peter's just saying, this is what's going to happen to you. I'm going to stand back and watch. That's my humble opinion. I mean, I can't prove it one way or the other. He says, Peter says to her, why did you agree? He meant you and Ananias, your husband, you agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Now, tests can have two means, to test to see if they could escape detection, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Or sometimes the word test has a sense of provoke. Don't test me, young lady, as I would say to my youngest daughter sometimes as she about drove me crazy. Don't test me. Don't provoke me. And I think that's, in my opinion, I don't think Jameson Fawcett and Brown's right about that. They're not testing to see if they can escape the test detection, although they were trying to do that. 
I think they were trying to um, to aggravate the Holy Spirit. They might not have meant to, but they thought they could get away. Their their actions did it, whether they meant 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 it or not. In other words, they agreed together to hold back the money, and the result was that they tested the Spirit of the Lord. And Peter just shortens all that up and says, "Why did you agree to test?" That doesn't mean that they agreed. Their main purpose was to try to to aggravate the Holy Spirit. Their main purpose was to get, make money, or to and, and to maintain their spiritual status in the eyes of their fellow believers. That's what they agreed to do, but the result was that they tested the Spirit of the Lord. It doesn't matter either way. They did a bad thing. Acts 5, verse 10. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. Luke doesn't tell us who killed her, just like he doesn't tell us who killed her husband, Ananias. But she was just as dead. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and carried her and buried her beside her husband. Again, Adam Clark speculates as to what were the options as to the agency of her death. Was it Peter's words? Was it Peter's prayers? Was it naturally through shame and remorse? I've already mentioned that option in discussing Ananias' death, and I've dismissed that. I don't believe that people die of shame that quickly, that suddenly. Was it an immediate judgment of God? Adam Clark says it was. I tend to think he's right. Now, the next question was, were Ananias and Sapphira saved? I think they were. Why would they be hanging out with Christians in the Christian community if they weren't saved? They weren't trying, they, there wasn't a lot of money there. It wasn't like they were trying to get rich. I just think they believed in Jesus and thought that Jesus' and the Holy Spirit's demands for holiness were not as high as they were. So the punishment was temporal. And as I think I said earlier, don't think that just because you're elect and predestined that you can go out and do whatever you want without facing temporal punishments. And temporal punishments, watch all these Lifetime movies about drug addiction, about anorexia, about bulimia, about stalking, about adultery, about divorce, about alcoholism, you know, all the things that made America great. Look at all that stuff. And you think that you can get away with your sin and not have any temporal consequences? Christians can get temporally punished just as much as non-Christians can. That doesn't mean they're going to lose their salvation, though. Although I'd be sort of ashamed to walk up into heaven after doing some stuff that, that's going on in the Christian church today and say, oh, Jesus, well, hi, how you doing? You know, after I've just shacked up with my secretary and embezzled the funds of my megachurch or whatever it was that I might have done. Acts 5.11, Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things, as well it should have. You mean all they did was lie and they got struck dead? Now, you think those early church people, do you think that they perhaps have got a great motivation for holiness now? You bet they did. The whole church, church, ecclesia, that's the first use of the term in Acts according to my NIV study Bible. Now, of course, church can be used to describe a local church or church in the city, which is basically, that is a local church. It's just more than just a house. In other words, let's put it this way. You can refer to a church in a home or a church in a city, or it can refer to the universal church. Three options. Here's some examples of a local church in a city. Acts 8 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death. That would be Stephen. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem scattered all about the city. So there's your city church, Acts 11:22. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent Bartimaeus to travel as far as Antioch. The church at Jerusalem, a city church, Acts 13:1. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And I don't have any quotes, but there's, I think, eight passages where the Scripture refers to the church in so-and-so's house, the church in Nymphus' house. I think Philemon had a church. I can't remember. Lots of them. 
my memory is weak on that. But so you got house church, you got city church, and then the universal church. There's lots of scriptures that say that. Matthew sixteen eighteen. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. All right, so you have to tell by the context what the word refers to, and it is important in certain theological contexts to isolate what the word means. Now, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. That word was already being used for political and other assemblies. I just read some Greek history during the Cleisthenes' democratic reforms in Athens. They had, well, they'd already set up an ecclesia, but it was kind of like a popular assembly. It didn't have a lot of power. But during Cleisthenes' time, the ecclesia got all kinds of powers. They would receive foreign dignitaries. They would make foreign policy. They would set tax policy. They would meet together. They didn't call it the ecclesia when they met. They called, had another name for it, but they would meet and do judicial, even capital crimes. They did some executive functions. They, they did, you know, basically they ran the government of Athens, the ecclesia. And that's why, in my humble opinion, that the New Testament writers use the word ecclesia for the church because the church has the right to debate, to decide, to come to consensus, to make decisions with all kinds of all the hustle, all the tussle, and all the bustle, if you will, that goes on with deliberative proceedings. That's the way the church is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a bunch of zombies lined up in rows listening to what the pastor says. Do this because I'm the pastor. Or do this because I'm the cardinal. Do this because I'm the pope. Or do this because the elders say to do it. No, the church is supposed to make decisions. That's why they. That's why Luke here and the other New Testament writers call the church the ecclesia, consensual decision-making. I can find five places in the book of Acts. I'm going to point them out as we go through where the church made consensual decisions, maybe perhaps led by the elders, and the, but never dictated by the elders. The Jerusalem Council, for example, the, 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 the uh, feeding of the Hellenistic Jews through the servants, that was done as a joint decision. How about the choosing of Matthias? We've already talked about that one. To take the place of Judas. Consensual decision. Ecclesia. Now notice that Acts 5.11 says that great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. The word got out, as John Gill points out. It got out beyond the church. It was noised abroad, if you will, <laughs> to use King James English. So everybody says, whoa, man, there's a bunch of power working amongst these Christians, and we better be careful. Because God is powerful. Gosh, I wish the church today would even approximate this kind of attitude. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Acts 5, 1 through 11, the story of Annas, Annas and Adonias and Sapphira. Now, in the next audio, we're going to talk about some preaching and healing done in Solomon's porch. More evangelism, more people being added to the church. A lot of healing going on. And that's mainly what the next section is going to be about. I hope you stay tuned for that, starting in Acts 5.12. I don't know how far I'm going to go yet. Hope you enjoyed this audio, too. See you next time.